Good to see you this morning. How's everybody doing? You all right? All right, good. Matt's all right. That's good. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> hey, um, uh, we're going to be this morning again in our study in First Peter, and so let me encourage you to pull out your copy of Scripture and uh, to turn to First Peter chapter one, verses ten through twelve. If you don't have a copy with you, I'd love for you to go grab one. We have uh, several out there in the middle. We're pretty casual around here, so please uh, go ahead and do that. And if you don't own a copy, please receive that as a gift from us to you and begin to read it. I'm convinced it'll change your life. Well, uh, this week I came across a quote that I want to share with you by one of these wise old sages that, that talks to us about some of the dynamics of what it means to exist together in interpersonal human relationships. And this wise old sage is a guy that I think you might know. Uh, his name is Brett Favre. <laughs> Anybody know him? I think he played for a team that wears purple and gold a few years ago. Remember that? Maybe there was another team. I can't remember. But, but anyways, uh, speaking of purple and gold, uh, there was a game last week, wasn't there? And, and somehow the team that was wearing purple won, I think, right? Uh, doesn't matter. Anyway, Brett Favre, uh, former quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings, <laughs> once said this. He said, I promise it won't be the whole sermon, all right? Uh, there are those people who are in your corner no matter what, he said. You can't do any wrong, even when you do wrong. And, and then there are those people that no matter what you do, they're going to dislike you, and that's not going to change. Okay? That kind of reflects some, some, uh, some dynamics in interpersonal relationships, doesn't it? That, that there are some folks who are always in your corner. They're going to support you. They got your back. And that's a good thing, but, but perhaps there are a whole bunch of other folks who, uh, no matter how hard you try, just aren't going to be in your corner. They might be in your circle, but not in your corner. And in fact, another person said it more concisely. He said, beware of people in your circle, but not in your corner. Okay, Friends, we've acknowledged for the past several weeks in our study in First Peter that life can be hard sometimes, e even for those who profess faith in Jesus. Because as the world continues to stand in opposition in so many ways to Christian biblical values, as, as it says, you have to be mean or violent in order to get things done to get your point across. Or on the flip side, you have to compromise morality in order to be compassionate and inclusive. The, 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 there, there's or a whole of other things, I'm convinced it's difficult to stand with Jesus today. It's difficult to know what that looks like. And, and that's why I'm convinced that Peter's message is so timely. Friends, the world can be scary. The world can be tough, amen? The world can be difficult. And we need to know what it looks like to stand firm in the gospel, to stand firm in the gospel in a challenging world. And friends, I think that one of the fears that we sometimes wrestle with reflects this dynamic that Brett Favre talked about. We wonder, if I, if I stand in the gospel, if I stand firm in Christ, am I going to be on an island all by myself? Am I going to face persecution? Is anybody going to be with me? Are they going to judge me? Is my family going to disown me? Because that's a part of some people's dynamic. Will people understand? Who's going to be in my corner? See, I know I've got a whole bunch of people in my circle, but who's with me? How do I know I'm going to be safe? Church, as the great apostle Peter speaks to the elect exiles of the dispersion, he raises the question, how do we stand firm in troubled times? And he challenges us with, with several things. You might remember that the first week we talked about Peter uh, inviting us to be who we are, not where we are. 
that no matter what's going on in the world around us, we ought to stand firm in who God has created us to be. And then he, he challenged us, when, when, when trials start coming, worship for what ails you. Bless the Lord. Acknowledge the Lord's goodness in your life and keep your perspective on Him. And then last week, we, we acknowledged that when trials come, we need to keep a perspective. We need to understand that our trials are temporary, that they're real, but they're not going to last forever. And, and we need to remember that God is using our trials to shape in us a, a, a faith that is both genuine and precious, okay? That's where we've been here. Well, today, Peter continues to encourage the exiles, praise God. And as he considers their experience, and as he looks at their trauma, this onslaught of of anti-Christian Roman imperialism, he knows that these are a people vulnerable to a deep sense of loneliness, to feeling abandoned, to feeling out of place, to look around and, and see a wide circle, and yet perhaps a corner that is very minimal, that's very maybe even non-existent. And so he writes this to the elect exiles of the dispersion in chapter 1, verse 10. Would you follow along with me as I read? He writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Church, it turns out, as we, as we read here, there are several characters who are in the corner of the exiles. Praise God. We're going to examine them together. But, but first, I want you to look at this phrase. The very first phrase in, in verse uh, 10 re- re- references uh, back to verse 9. Peter says, concerning this salvation. Concerning this salvation. And in the next three verses, he, he describes how that salvation has come to the exiles. Just how it's come. And, and notice how he weaves it through the text. He starts there in verse 10, referencing salvation. We just mentioned that. But then he, he describes those who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, he says. Different words, same concept. Grace and salvation go hand in hand. And then in verse 11, you see, he, he describes the sufferings and the subsequent glories of Christ. This is the, 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 the means by which salvation was procured. This is what Jesus did to secure salvation for us. He suffered and then was glorified. And then he uses the term things again at the end of verse 12 to, to reference uh, that same concept, that same good news, that salvation. Also at the beginning of verse 12. And then in the middle... In verse 12, it says this. It says, And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. And the word for good news here is euangelizo. It's, it's the word from which we get evangelism. It's, it's the good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation's running through the entire text here in verses 10 through 12. Okay? And church, as Peter concludes his introduction in his letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion, he's demonstrating how the gospel, how salvation has cut through time and space to reach the people that are in most dire need of it. And he employs a host of characters to do it. 
He employs a host of characters to do it. See, Peter wants the exiles to know not only is salvation available to you, but also an entire community. Just look at those who are in your corner, in your salvation corner, if you will. (laughs) All these agents of good news have been sent by God for you. Friends, if you've ever felt alone in your faith, if you've ever wondered if your participation in the gospel really matters in the grand scheme of eternity, I want you to listen to this. Look who's rooting for you. Look who's in your corner. First, you have the prophets. First, you have the prophets. The prophets are in your corner. Look at this in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. (laughs) Now, we might first ask, just which prophets are we talking about here? What is, what is Peter referencing? Are, are these prophets like in the Old Testament, like, like Moses and Isaiah and, and, and others? Or are they more charismatic prophets that are speaking to the modern day church at the time of the writing? Are these people who are there to, to build up the church in modern times? And commentators differ on this, but, but the majority are who I agree with. They, they tend to understand these to be Old Testament prophets. And they look at uh, things like verse 11, where, where this idea of searching and of anticipating uh, a Messiah that was yet to come is, is there. And of course, if it was in the New Testament, they wouldn't be searching and anticipating. They would have been responding. Okay, And then in verse 12, uh, it's, it's a reference to those who have preached the gospel in modern times, and it seems to be set in contrast with those prophets uh, from the Old Testament, like it references here in verse 10. Okay, So if you didn't understand any of that, Old Testament prophets, all right? Old Testament prophets. <laughs> now, notice verse 10. Peter says that these are prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. These are prophets who prophesied about grace. Friends, the first agents of, of good news that are in your corner come by way of prophets prophesying. <laughs> prophets prophesying, but, but not just about random things. They're prophesying about grace for exiles, for, for those elect exiles of the dispersion, to be sure, but, but also for you and for me. See, we have prophets in our corner. And, 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 and church, it's become popular in modern times to look at the Old Testament and to go, you know what, that, that's kind of irrelevant. That's, that's old language. Those stories don't relate to me. Um, the prophets, they were writing in a different time for a different space. I, I'm not a person of the Old Testament. I'm, I'm more into the New Testament. I'm more into grace. And, and, and as we consider that, we, we actually present a false dichotomy. The Old Testament is not opposite, is not anti-New Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is littered with good news of prophets prophesying about the grace that was to come. And, and Paul understood this, and so he said to Timothy, look, Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful according to God's purposes. And, and Paul meant the Old Testament in that, as well as the New. Church, to neglect the Old Testament is to neglect the good news because good news is everywhere in it. (laughs) Just consider Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. On this first Sunday of Advent, uh, we read the prophets predicting, pointing to a future glory when the Messiah would come. And, And Isaiah does that. He says this. He says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's good news, church. That's a prophet prophesying grace for us. The prophets were prophesying in our corner. But not not only that. They were also searching, the text says. They, They were searching. They were inquiring. Peter says that they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Let me give you an example. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, the the prophet Daniel speaks of of 70 weeks that are decreed to finish the transgression. There are 70 weeks before Christ will return in all his glory and finish the transgression, finish the time of suffering that was instituted as a result of sin entering the world. And it's from this text in Daniel 9 and, and several others that we gain a better understanding of the events of Christ's return. And it's enormously helpful. Someday, perhaps, we'll do a study in Daniel. Uh, Someday when I grow up a little bit, but (laughs) we'll we'll, we'll get after it. But church, though we don't know the day or the hour, we we, we need not be surprised at the coming of Christ. Daniel predicts it. He points to it. And see, we know from Daniel and the other prophets that the world gets worse before it gets better. (laughs) The world gets worse before it gets better. And that's a bit sobering, isn't it? That's a bit sobering, and maybe a lot sobering, but, but here's the thing. When I know that to be true, when I see it and the prophets foretell it, I find it helpful because God expected this. God said the world would be a mess. He said it would. It doesn't mean we don't work against the mess and for the cause of Christ, but the world's going to be a mess. And friends, we can trust God through it. God has a plan. You know, when we go deer hunting, we use cameras to try to discern uh, where the deer are, what their patterns are. And and you might sit out in a stand, and and, and if you don't see any deer, it can be awfully disappointing, right? It can be awfully disheartening. But if you have a a deer on camera, and you know that deer comes out at 7 p.m. or 6 p.m., or I guess in Wisconsin it gets dark at like 3 p.m., but but you have hope because you know uh, what's to come. Cameras are a gift to the deer hunter, and so the prophet is a gift to the person in exile. Knowing what's to come is a gift. The prophets tell us that God has a plan. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, Habakkuk says this. He says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It, It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It's surely to come. It will not delay. Habakkuk says, look, I've searched. I've examined the scripture. I've talked to the Lord about this. There's a Messiah that's coming. I've seen him on the camera. (laughs) He'll be there. It'll be worth it in the end. Friends, we need people in our corner to remind us to be patient as we wait for hope. The prophets, they, they do just that. They're in our corner prophesying grace and searching for what's to come. And in so doing, they're they're serving us faithfully and beautifully. Peter says in verse 12, he says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That when Moses was writing the Pentateuch, he wasn't serving himself. 
He was serving you and me. He was serving us. When Isaiah wrote these masterful words and these these messianic prophecies, he was serving us. The prophets were, were there to serve. They didn't see the things come to fruition on their own in their own time, but but they wrote down what God gave them to be an encouragement to us, to help us recognize salvation when it comes. Friends, if you lack any confidence in what God is doing, remember, the, the prophets predicted this. It's all part of the plan, even down to the minute details. I love how, uh, how Micah predicts the birthplace of Christ, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The prophets searched, and they prophesied, and they served. (laughs) How delightful to know that the Messiah that we serve, that we love, that we give our lives to, was talked about by the prophets, and he came exactly as they said he would. Church, Micah's prediction serves us today as we consider our great Messiah. The prophets served us. Micah served us by helping us recognize salvation. And and Peter understands this, and, and, and he understands the ministry of the prophets are to continue to be of service. And that's why throughout his letter, he's going to reference, we're going to see it, he's going to reference the prophets many times. In fact, he does so right in here in the first chapter. And In 1 Peter 1.16, he quotes Leviticus 11.44 when he says, You shall be holy as I am holy. He's referencing Leviticus. He's referencing Moses. In, in 1 Peter 1.24, he, he references Isaiah uh, 40, verse 6, when he says, all flesh is like grass. Church, the prophets are in our corner. They're, they're prophesying grace. They're, they're searching for evidence. And they're, they're serving by predicting the future and proclaiming the gospel. They're setting the context for the coming of the Messiah. This is all just as God had planned. And so, the, the prophets are the first agent of grace. First agents of grace. But now look at the second. Look at the second. In verse 11, Peter says that the prophets are those who searched and inquired carefully, inquiring, verse 11, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Church, the Spirit of Christ, along with the prophets, is also behind us and before us and alongside us. He's in our corner. See, The prophets were empowered by the Spirit with the good news. They were empowered by the Spirit with the message of the gospel. And so 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever carried out by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) This is one of the key texts we look to when we talk about uh, uh, inspiration of Scripture. God is... sent the Spirit to empower the prophets to write His words. And so it was through the prophets that the Spirit of Christ predicted what was to come. And see, the Spirit is in our corner by predicting. (laughs) What does He predict? Well, first, He predicts Christ's sufferings. He predicts Christ's sufferings. He did it through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, the prophet, who, remember, is carried along by the Holy Spirit, predicts Jesus' sufferings when he says, he was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. David was carried along by the Holy Spirit when he wrote Psalm 22, and when he pointed to the coming crucifixion of Christ. Psalm 22.1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, that's familiar, isn't it? Jesus uttered those words when he died at the cross. Church, the Spirit predicts Christ's sufferings. But praise God, not only that. The Spirit not only predicts Christ's sufferings, but he also predicts Christ's subsequent glories. His subsequent glories. And again, passages like those from the book of Daniel uh, paint this beautiful picture of the glory, the coming glory of Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit reveals to Daniel in chapter 7, verse 9, this. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Talk about glory. In the ancient of days, takes his throne. It'll be a glorious, glorious thing. And, and we could have a whole sermon just on that. But instead, I, I want you to notice, I want you to notice what Peter describes here as the Spirit predicts. There's a chronology here. See, the Spirit predicts the sufferings of Christ first, but then the text says, and also the subsequent glories. There's a chronological word there. There's a timing word, subsequent. And I think it's intentional. Uh, first, church, suffering, then glory. <laughs> you know, I, I might set out to deer hunt some night, and it's, it's an easy night. I get there out there an hour before sunset, and it's beautiful and, 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 and comfortable, and the sun's gorgeous, and I might harvest a beautiful animal. That, that'd be one way of doing it, right? But, but another way of doing it might be to sit out all day and, and, and to suffer a little bit. It might be cold. It might be in the single digits. The wind might be blowing in my face. But if you promise me, hey, at the end of that suffering, you're going to harvest a buck of a lifetime, I'm in. I'll suffer for that. <laughs> Friends, we've got to remember. And I, I realize that that illustration is trite compared to the suffering of Christ, no doubt. But friends, suffering first, then glory. That's how God designed it. That's the model that Jesus gave us. What a gift from the Spirit. Are, are you suffering today? Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand, but, but are you suffering? Are you struggling? Remember, for Christ, suffering first, then glory. So too for you and me. I'm convinced that's the model here. It's going to be worth it. <laughs> to stand for Jesus, even to suffer for Jesus, is worth the price. Because glory comes. Glory comes. Finally, the, the Spirit's not only in our corner by predicting, but also by sending. <laughs> he sends. He sends on behalf of the Father for the edification of the church. In verse 12, we, we read that it's the Holy Spirit who sends preachers to preach the good news. 
And see, the Spirit didn't just lay the groundwork for the gospel and then, and then get out of there. He didn't, he didn't just say, okay, here's how to do it. Here's the manual. You guys fend for yourselves. No, he, he's actively ensuring that the gospel reaches its intended recipients. Those whom God has chosen, God will reach by the empowering initiative of the Holy Spirit as he sends out his ambassadors into the world with the good news message. Church, if, if you've heard the good news, it's because the Spirit sent somebody to tell you. And it doesn't have to be a guy standing up here preaching from a pulpit. He sent ambassadors to bring the good news to those whom he's chosen, to his elect. He's brought it to you if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. Church, the Holy Spirit is in your corner. So we have the Spirit, Spirit in our corner. We have the prophets in our corner. But, but not only that. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving, not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. And here, specifically, I think Peter's referencing the apostles. The apostles, church, the Spirit sent apostles with good news to the elect exiles of the dispersion. People like Peter and James and John and Paul. And their job was to preach to those whom God had given them. Their job was preaching so that, that you and I might know and might respond. Church, we have a whole host in our corner. We have the prophets. We have the Spirit. We have the apostles. Not only that. See, finally, church, Look at this little phrase at the end of verse 12. The last phrase in the SV says, things into which angels long to look. These are things into which angels long to look. Peter writes that, that all these things, salvation, grace, the sufferings and the glories of Christ, the things announced, the good news, these are things into which angels long to look. And, and as Peter references the angels, he brings the entire argument, not only of verses 10 through 12, but actually of the first 12 verses of the letter into focus. <laughs> Friends, you, yes, are in exile. You're a people who, who are displaced, disenfranchised, discombobulated, <laughs> persecuted, troubled. But though these things are true, you're also a people of privilege. You're a people of privilege such, such that the angels long to know what it's like to be you. Isn't that an incredible thought? See, here's the thing, church. The angels don't know what it's like to have somebody die for them. Jesus didn't die for the angels. You ever think about that? If the angels are in heaven, if they're with God, if they're on the side of righteousness, they don't need somebody to die for them. They haven't sinned. But if they're fallen angels, if they're uh, participants in this dark world, Jesus' death does nothing for them because they're not invited into righteousness. They're not invited into salvation. There's a coming day when, when demons, when the prince of demons will be cast into the lake of fire. And, and once and for all time, they will be thrown into eternal conscious punishment. They'll be separated from us. They'll be condemned. Jesus didn't die for the angels. 
And so the angels are, are, are there in heaven and, and they're, they're looking out on what God has done on this glorious gospel story and they're thinking, I wonder what it's like to be Andy who has messed up so many times, who has goofed up and screwed up and, and fallen so far short of the glory of God only to have the Son of God, the very Son of God, give his life to sacrifice himself so that Andy could be saved. I wonder what that's like. What's it like to be loved that much? And not only Andy, but the whole church. The angels long to look into these things. There's something incredibly powerful about being the ones that the Savior died for. And so their longing reveals to us the privilege that we have. We are a people engraced. We are a people that are loved. It's not that God doesn't love his angels. I'm sure he does. But he loves us to the point where he gave his son while we were still a mess to die for us. Praise God. Friends, you and I are the recipients of the suffering of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we're we're invited not only to participate in his sufferings, but also in his glory. Even the host of the heavenly angels have their eyes on you. (laughs) Even the angels are in your corner. Friends, where where does that leave us? Where does that leave us here as a community? Where does it leave us as individuals? Since the prophets and the spirit and the apostles and the angels are all in in our corner as agents of good news, what what, what ought to be our response? Well, I'm going to suggest to you at least four things. At least four things. And, and, and the first may be obvious, but I'll say it anyway. We must embrace the good news. We need to embrace the good news. We need to receive it. We need to accept it. These things, grace, salvation, good news, they've been announced to us. God has sent the apostles. He sent the gospel to us through his son, Jesus Christ. But until we in faith respond to that gospel, until we accept and receive what God has done for us, it's not ours. We need to embrace the good news. If you missed our series this fall uh, called The Story We Tell, I invite you to listen to it. But I'll summarize it for you here. And it can, it's digestible in, in summary as well. Friends, God sets the mark. God sets the standard for holiness, but we miss it. We fall short. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the mark of God, the standard of God. Therefore, Romans 6.23, the wages of... Yeah, the wages of sin is death. There we go, right? The wages of sin is death. We're we're, we're plunged into death because of sin, because we've missed the mark. That's bad news. But praise God, Jesus does something about it. Jesus hits the mark for us. And so though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that Jesus stands in the gap for us to satisfy the wrath of a holy God against sin. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That because of Jesus and his sacrificial death for us, we are declared righteous. We are justified before God. The only thing that's required of us is that we respond in faith that we stand with Jesus. And so when we believe, when we repent of our sin, acknowledge that we can't do it, but Jesus did, 
we receive that gift of eternal life and, and, and we are adopted into God's family. That, that's the good news. Friend, if you've yet to respond to that good news, if, if you've yet to, 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 in faith, receive that which Christ did for you, perhaps today would be the day. I invite you, embrace the gospel. Embrace the evangelizo, <laughs> the good news. We must embrace it. But not only that, we must also expect the pattern that Jesus models. Suffering first and then glory. We must expect the pattern that Jesus models. Suffering first and then glory. Friends, don't be surprised when you find yourself in exile, right? Don't be surprised. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Who's overcome the world? Not, not you and me. Okay? Jesus has overcome the world. Take heart. We can trust him. Don't be surprised that this world is hard. Jesus promised it would be. But we can trust him. Expect suffering, then glory. And then, not only must we embrace the gospel, not only must we expect the pattern of the gospel, suffering first, then glory, but then we must encourage each other with what we know. I don't know about you, but sometimes my pain becomes so heavy that I need somebody to remind me of that which is true. I need somebody to come alongside me and say, Andy, be patient. God is doing something here. Andy, you can trust him. Andy, be encouraged with these words of Scripture. Several months ago, I had somebody come up to me and give me just a word from Scripture that was so encouraging to me that, I, that I've held on to, that I've walked with. I need that sometimes. I forget that glory comes after suffering. I need a friend to remind me. I need you to remind me. As we sing together, as we participate together, we remind each other of that which God has done for us. I, I need you to remind me. I dare say you need me to remind you. We need each other. That, that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, he says, don't get drunk with wine. Don't do that kind of foolishness. That's debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, that's why it's so important that we gather together, that we do what we're doing here week in and week out. That's why we light an Advent candle to say, hey, there's a hope that's coming. That's why we sing songs about the living hope in Jesus Christ that we have. When, when we share life together, when we share worship together, when we give thanks together, on this Thanksgiving weekend, when we join in growth groups together around the Word of God and, and, and in prayer, when we sit at coffee with, with a friend that can encourage us, or we go out hunting together and we talk about the things of God, or just be Jesus to each other and have presence together, we do what God has designed us to do. Church, we have the prophets. We have the Spirit. We have the apostles, even the angels but we also have each other. We have the community. Praise God. And we must not underutilize the resource of the church to bring encouragement. Now, sometimes we discourage each other, right? If we're honest, sometimes we frustrate each other. Sometimes I frustrate Christy in our relationship. That happens. But you know what? We keep coming back because we know 
This is God's design to build each other up in our marriage, but friends, also in our church. You don't have to be perfect to be an encouragement. In fact, you can fail and still bring encouragement from Jesus. We're agents of good news, friends, to each other and to the world. Why? How? <laughs> because we're engraced. We're marked by grace. Finally, uh, churches, as those w- with all of these people in our corner, we must embrace the good news. We must expect the pattern of Jesus. We must encourage one another constantly. And then we must be prepared to engage our environment. We must be prepared to engage our environment. We've got to stand firm, church. This world is a troubling place sometimes. It's always been troubling ever since the fall. It's still troubling. It's going to be troubling until Christ returns. We need to engage that trouble by standing firm in the good news, in the gospel. And Peter's going to unpack just how to do that through the rest of his letter. I'm looking forward to diving into the rest of it. But friends, God has called us to engage our environment by standing firm for Jesus Christ. Embrace, expect, encourage, and engage. One of the loneliest experiences of my life was after my sophomore year in high school. Towards the end of the school year, I I began dating a a gal who uh, I I liked, at least I thought I did. And and, uh, for the better part of a couple of months, I started kind of leaving my friend group and starting to hang out with hers. And it wasn't a bad group. It's just different. But after two weeks, after we uh, DTR'd, that was what we called it uh, back then, define the relationship. I understand that's not cool anymore, but two weeks later, she, she dumped me. <laughs> kind of like Brett Favre dumped the Packers. <laughs> or was it the other way around? I can't remember. <laughs> no, she dumped me. And, and there I was, and, and I, I was into the summer. And I was disappointed and hurt and frustrated. And I'd left all my friends and, and they weren't quite ready to return. <laughs> and so I sat there in my bedroom a lot that summer, kind of moping, kind of disappointed. I, I think I slipped into some mild depression. You know? And one of those evenings when I was feeling sorry for myself, I got a knock on my door and, and there it was my brother. <laughs> and, you know, we were still young enough where we didn't always get along and, and, and whatnot. But my brother could tell I was struggling. And so he said, hey, Andy, I'm going out tonight. And why don't you come with? And I remember thinking, well, you want me to come hang with you? How does that work? And his friends were people I looked up to. They were cool. And I didn't happen to have any friends at the moment. So I thought, you know. And he said, no, no, come with and we'll hang out. And, And there were my brother got in my corner and I remember sitting in the living room I didn't I don't intend to do that you know but there we were sitting in the living room and uh, I remember talking to his buddies and they treated me like one of the group you know they just accepted me and I'll never forget it and and there I knew that my brother was in my corner that was probably a turning point in our relationship and he's still in my corner Friends, some of you today are lonely. You're you're tired. You're disappointed, maybe. You're angry. Maybe you're afraid. You know, fear is just gripping you. You feel misunderstood. You're suffering. 
I want you to remember, friends, you have the hosts of heaven in your corner. You have the prophets, you have the spirit, you have the apostles all speaking to you and for you, advocating for you, groaning for you, praying for you. You have Jesus, the high priest. He's your advocate. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God right now. He's intercessing for you. And friends, you have his bride, his body. You have the church. And yeah, we're not perfect, but we love you. And our job is to represent Jesus, not only out to the world, but also to each other. Just look who's in your corner, church. Next week, we're going to talk about what that means. How, how, how do we live that out with flesh on? But church, for now, let's be a people who constantly point each other and point the world to the ultimate person in our corner, to Jesus Christ. Let's embrace the gospel. Let's, let's expect the pattern of Christ, suffering, then glory. Let's encourage one another and let's engage accordingly. Let's stand firm in the gospel. No compromise. Amen? With that in mind, let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of this great apostle. I can't help but think of, of Peter in his life, full of ups and downs, full of victories and trials. I think of Peter who, who per, perhaps, as he even wrote these verses, was remembering that moment when he denied you, Jesus. And then the second moment, and then the third, and the, just the deep loneliness and shame that he felt. As he and the other apostles, the other disciples, scattered, ran away at the most critical time in history. And yet here, the good news that Peter had embraced, that Peter had been a beneficiary of, was that the God that he served and the Jesus that he loved is the one who died to cover his shame and to forgive him and to restore him into right relationship with you. And I love Peter's perspective here. Throughout, throughout time and space, you, God, have been active in setting the table for us to feast with you in personal relationship. And so, God, we thank you. And, and we say to you, Lord, do what you will. Come suffering. Come trial. We know that glory is ours because you've secured it for us. And so we're there with you no matter what. Thank you, God. We trust you with all of these things. In Jesus' name.